from Romans 7th chapter 18th to the 25th verse and we'll be reading from Ephesians 6 and 10. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. The key verse, in fact, the uh, title, I suppose, of this lesson is The War is On. And the key verse says this, I say then, Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that ye would. Found in Galatians 5, 16, and 17. Lesson aim says this, No sooner are we born into the family of God than we feel the two natures struggling within to gain supremacy. Spiritual armor has been provided to win this battle. The Apostle Paul is setting forth here a category in which Christians today find it hard to fit into. Instead, we find ourselves resting easy and comfortably in our own sealed houses while God does all our fighting for us. Dressed in our regal robes, we're king's kids, and sometimes getting ready and dressed in our bridal attire until the church seems like it's disintegrated into what is called rich man's kids, just spoiled brats waiting for God to do everything for us. 
But the Apostle Paul sets forth a category here that we all should know and realize, category of warfare, soldiers, called to be soldiers of the cross. And almost all throughout, spotted all throughout the Apostle Paul's writings is a warfare or some energy that has to be exerted from the Christian individual. In other words, he lets us know that our God is a reality, that our God is there to help us, that our God will strengthen us in all things, but there must be some effort on our part. In other words, for us to win the battle over the flesh, which is still so much alive in our lives, seeking to find a control in our lives that it always had. The Apostle Paul, and I want to quote some scriptures or read them to you, and I'm sure you know them all, but just a few things from some of the books of the Apostle Paul as he's writing. 1 Corinthians 9, 26, he said, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. In other words, the Apostle Paul was a great sportsman. You can find that in his writings. Whether he participated or not is something else, but he certainly was aware of what was happening about the races in the arena and all of these things and he recognized that he said now I run now that's effort that's energy Christ has run this race for us we say well he's run ahead of us and he's let us know that we have the abilities to run the race but Paul said now I run but he also says not only do I run but I have a certain goal in mind he said I'm not running uncertainly in other words, I'm not just running around in circles trying to find out which way to go. He said, I have ascertained, I have searched out, I have recognized that there is a goal for me to obtain, and I've set myself that direction, and I'm running, that I might be able to reach that goal, or as he calls it, the crown of life at the end of this race that we're running. And I think maybe we might take some... Uh, comfort in that to realize that we are in a race that we must condition ourselves to run this race that has also been run before by Jesus Christ who was all God and all man and he let us know that humanity with the presence of God inside of it can attain what he attained he did not let he did not just leave us here and said I'm God so I can attain it and you can't he came down took on the form of flesh that he might feel as we feel, might have the uncertainties that we have, and yet filled with the presence of God, was able to resist every temptation that came his way. And that's the reason he tells us that we need the power of God in our lives. We might decide that we're going to be good. We might take the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse us from sin, but he lets us realize that there is an empowering that is necessary for us to be a winner, for us to complete a race or even start one, and certainly for us to fight the good fight of faith. So the Apostle Paul said, first of all, you've got to condition yourself to run. I'm sure he must have watched the athletes as they prepared themselves. And uh, he, in his scripture, said, laying aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, let us run with patience this race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And he was trying to tell us that, and when you look at it, athletes strip down really to the bare minimum. As long as they can uh, keep their dignity, they don't want any more weight on them than necessary. 
because it's going to take all their energy and able to finish the race and receive a crown. And Apostle Paul is telling us that, that now. When you run a race, don't run it uncertainly. Don't be running all over the track. Don't be running the wrong direction. But get a goal in mind. And then he says, looking unto Jesus. In other words, find the face of Christ. Find the goals that Christ has set before us and then begin to run the race. You have to also realize that he said the race is not to the swift. Very little value for us to get in there and run real hard for a little while and then all at once we've just run our course and we haven't finished it and we're falling by the wayside. It reminds me, my, my brother was is shorter than I am. I don't think you met my oldest brother, but he's shorter than I am, but he always was a good runner. He could always outrun me and he was fast and he was training one time for the 440 in high school and he started out real fast in fact he almost lapped the other ones before the 440 was over with i think it's two rounds it used to be around the track i don't know how it is now but anyway he got within as far as from here to the door there of winning that and he fell completely exhausted all of that work that he had done, all that training that he had done, and all that he had striven for was of no value. He didn't even finish the race. He didn't even come in last. He didn't even cross the finish line. I think if the Apostle Paul is saying anything, he's telling us, now run, get your gait, realize what you can do and how you can go, uh, get yourself in training because you are in a race, and set your eyes on the finish line and keep the course don't be running here and there don't be going on this side and then on that side or running another direction but find the course find where you want to run and then pace yourself because it's it's really important that we finish the race amen i, I would like maybe to be one of the first ones in but the important thing is that i get him and if we're not careful, we'll try to pace ourselves with someone else. We see individuals who seems like their life has lived a little bit better and, and spiritually speaking and in wisdom and in intellect and the abilities to understand the Bible. And if we're not careful, the first thing we know, we're going to be trying to keep up with them. And it's not within our nature to keep up with them. The main thing I'm saying is this, and Paul was saying it, finish the race. Get to the other side. When you lay down this thing, why, be sure that you have kept your eyes on Jesus. Look toward him. Look for nothing or no one else and realize that you've got witnesses all around to say that the race has been run before, that they have finished it, and the main thing is to get to the end of it. There is a crown of life for everyone that finishes this race. So I think that's what he's trying to tell us in that. Therefore, so run I not as uncertainly... And then he says, so fight I. In other words, there's energy there. Anybody that's ever been into a fight certainly realizes it takes a lot of energy to get whipped and it takes a lot of energy to whip somebody else. But whatever you're talking about, he said, so fight I. In other words, there's a battle. But he said, I don't fight as one that beateth the air. In other words, he knows where his target is. He knows who he's fighting. And a lot of energy is wasted from individual fighters if you'll watch them whenever they miss their target that's harder on them and they exhaust more energy uh, than they would if they was to make solid contact with the individuals they're warring against and the apostle paul is telling us here look you know who your adversary is get a good beat on him know when you swing that you're going to hit him 
I mean, don't just turn around and just, just swing and fight and beat in the air and, and exhaust all your energy. All at once, you are completely exhausted, and you have not landed a single blow on the devil. <laughs> so first thing, know what, who are we really warring against? And of course, a lot of people say, well, the devil. Well, in the final analysis, probably, but our biggest enemy is old nature, human nature within ourselves. And if we realize that now, uh, who was it used to say, the devil made me do it? <laughs> now, that's a cop-out. <laughs> Amen. That's a cop-out. You have this human nature. It's in you, but we who have God within us, the Spirit of God within us, don't really have any cop-out at all. We simply realize that Jesus has fought the fight, that we are capable of doing that. But Christians today, a lot of individuals, simply exhaust a lot of energy hitting out at Lord knows what. They don't even know what they're fighting. They don't know the nature of their enemy. Uh, they don't recognize which way he will come. They haven't really watched him in order to find out exactly which way he will attack. And I often say this, and I, I don't do it because I'm proud of it. I don't do it to exalt me. But I was raised on a farm, and I was a good, stout farm boy at the time. And uh, my muscle wasn't down here then. It was up here where it belonged. <laughs> and uh, I thought when I went to town that I was probably just as good a man as anybody there. And, of course, you know, back in those days, I don't know how it is now, but back in those days, there's always somebody when a new boy come to town to try him out. I mean, they didn't like him there. They wanted to see that he left. And so the big guy of the town took it on himself to run me out of town. And I thought, well, he can't do that. You know, I've got a few muscles, not only in my head, but I took the worst beating that I ever took in my life from that man because I was probably stout. But I wasted more energy trying to hit him. He had fought before. He knew exactly, probably, which, which way to go, and I didn't. I just thought you get in there with brute strength and you just whip anybody and you get ready to whip. And that's not the case. You simply don't do that. So I took the biggest whipping I ever took in my life, but I made it up my mind then that he's not going to get away with this. I mean, I'm going to try to learn something from this beating. And uh, in doing that, then, every fight that man had, and he had one almost every weekend, every fight he had, I was there to watch him. All right? I was there to see exactly how he done, way he done, if he dropped his left or how ever, and watched his feet and all of this, and took note for, I don't know, two or three months to see exactly the weak points of that man. And then the next time we had it out, it was a different story because I had studied him. Now, I said all that to say this. We need to realize who our adversary is. We need to find out from Jesus Christ his weak points. And when we get ready to land a blow on him, let's land it on him. Let's don't just beat the air or swing at something that's not there or just simply come out swinging because of something that's happened in our life. Now, Paul says, now, when I fight... I don't beat the air. I don't waste any energy. When I get ready to land a blow on the devil, I'm going to land a blow. And when I get ready to land a blow on human nature, I'm going to do that. He said, I keep my body under subjection. All right? And then in 1 Timothy 6, 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. And then he says, lay hold 
lay hold on eternal life. Get a hold of it. Get a good grip on eternal life and fight the good fight of faith. There's so many, so many areas in which we could lose the faith. Lose faith in Jesus Christ. Lose faith in the fundamental principles and basics that he uh, sets forth for us. And the Apostle Paul is telling us that once we gain faith in Christ, and once we have found the righteousness of Christ, and once we have experienced the power of the Holy Ghost, and once we have known what is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is still a fight to hold on to that. That your enemy is not satisfied with just giving up your life, that he has controlled all of this time, and he was saying in that, fight the good fight of faith. In other words, it's always a fight to keep hold of the hand of God and lay hold on eternal life. And then he says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought. Now, you got ready. Fight was over. The day was done. The apostle Paul was getting ready to uh, lay down in peaceful slumber, but he said these words, I have fought a good fight. In other words, he was saying there wasn't a time in my life for what I didn't have to fight for what I believed in. There was no relaxation on the battlefield. There wasn't any time when I could simply just lay down and think that I have had everything made. Now he's coming to his final end, and he's saying, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. He fought the good fight of faith. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me what? A crown of righteousness. And he said, not for me only. In other words, if we win the fight, it's for us too. And then he says in Hebrews 10, 32, something I thought was really noteworthy, as he said, after ye were illuminated. In other words, after Christ came into your life, after the light of the glorious gospel shined upon your path, and after you saw the light pierce the darkness and you came out of the darkness into everlasting and eternal life, he says, if you will remember after you were illuminated, after Christ came in your life, you endured a great fight of afflictions. In other words, he was letting us know that there are afflictions in our life that we have to fight to attain, we have to fight to hold on to that which we have already attained. And he lets us know that this is after we've been illuminated, after Christ has come into our life, after we feel as if he has taken control, there's still afflictions in the heart and life of individuals. In other words, he lets us know that we're still dwelling in these human bodies. We still have these human lusts, these human desires, these human sicknesses, these human weaknesses, these human downfalls. And he lets us know that we have endured the past fought affliction to the past, so why can't we continue to do it? In other words, he's telling us, like he says in here, he's letting us know that there's a war. From Romans 7, 18, he describes it in his own language. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 18, Paul talking to Timothy says, This charge I commit unto you, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. In other words, you have been prophesied over, you've been told what you're supposed to do, and through the prophecies, through the laying on of hands, through the presence of God, that you might war a good warfare. And then 2 Timothy 2, 4 says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. I think that is probably some of the best advice that the Apostle Paul could have given Timothy, and Timothy then 
uh, Paul writing in the, in the letter, and then it was recorded and preserved to let us know that in this day and hour there is entanglements in the affairs of this life, that there is human nature still alive. It still wants to reach out. It still wants to bring us the way we have, were, were before Christ came in. And he's telling us that if we're in this battle and if we're going to fight it, and if we're going to win it, we can't be entangled with all of these things in this world. That's not telling us that we've got to be a hermit or some type of a, of a what would you say, that goes to these abbeys and moves himself out from this world. It's not telling us that. It's telling us that there's a lot of things in this world we got no business with that weakens our determination to go on with God, that destroys our faith in God a lot of times, and certainly takes time away from us that could be given in prayer and concern adoration to God and concern and intercessory prayer for other individuals. And he's trying to tell us this, don't get so entangled in the affairs of this life that you forget what your life with Christ is like. And he said, now anybody that wars, anybody that's in this Christian warfare, anybody that's been involved in this war must watch himself. And then, last but not least, 2 Timothy 2.30, where he tells Timothy to endure hardness as a good soldier. In other words, I'm sure some of you have been in the Army, Navy, or what have you, and you realize that they're, I don't, I don't think it's that way now. I think that you just about whatever they get ready. Some of them do. But there is still a certain toughness and a hardness to prepare you for the battle. And if we don't uh, win in that, then doing our training, then certainly we stand more of a chance of getting killed in the war. First Peter 2.11 says, Abstain from fleshly lust was war against the soul. And then Second Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And he tells us, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 18, and I'm sure you must be aware of that, is defining the struggle of the two natures. It's a tongue twister sometimes when you look at it, but the Apostle Paul is defining the struggle between the nature of Saul of Tarsus and the nature of the Apostle Paul. Both of them were alive. The things that Saul of Tarsus one time in his humanity wanted to do was still struggling against that which Paul, the Apostle Paul, knew was wrong to do. And he comes to the 24th verse and he simply, after looking at that, he says, I see all of these things. I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present. I see another law warring in my members and mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. All of these laws he sees. I'm not going to take time to go into the laws, but there's uh, probably five, at least six specific laws that he names here, different type. But he said, I find these laws. Some of them I find not the ability whatsoever to cope with them. And he simply ends it in the 24th verse, O wretched man that I am. In other words, there's a certain wretchedness about an individual who is battling against the uh, powers of human mind in his life and that which Christ, when he comes in, tells you what to do. And he says, wretched man that I am. In other words, he said, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death, from this humanity, from the things that I think, the thoughts that come in my mind? And then he answers his own question as he says, I thank God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. In other words, with the flesh, the law of sin. In other words, he's trying to tell us that humanity will rule if we will let it. And then, of course, he comes right on to Ephesians 6.10, and he says, finally, he's ending up his epistle, and he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, part of the Christian destiny in your book is to be assaulted. I mean, if we would realize that, oftentimes we have been guilty of bearing individuals into the body of Christ and kind of letting them know that all their problems is over when they come to Jesus. You're never going to have any problems anymore. And instead of telling them that actually they have just changed sides, that they're not fighting against God anymore because they've come to him and surrendered to him, but they've made another enemy. They made an enemy out of the one that they've left, which is human nature and the powers of the devil. So we just change sides. Then our fight becomes for the good. And uh, our destiny, I mean, this, this is all throughout the Bible that we're going to be assaulted. I mean, the powers of hell make up its mind. Always there's always that little fiery darts or things there, but usually the devil will outline on all of our lives different, at different times and view us as to our strength and our weaknesses, and then he will launch an attack upon us individually as well as a, as a church. And you will, you will know that, that in your life sometimes things seem to go pretty smooth and that we don't seem to have a lot of problems. We're troubled a little bit in our mind. Launched a full-scale attack upon us individually in our lives to destroy us if he can. And this is why the Apostle Paul tells us that we do have armor, that if we uh, are trained to run the race and if we are trained to fight, why then when the enemy comes in, now we need to rec recognize this, He's thousands of years older than we are, Satan is, and a million times wiser than we are. And so in the final analysis, we are not a match for him. We simply cannot, and we'll never get super saints enough that we are a match for him. The only way that we can ever possibly win is to do like the Apostle Paul tells us to do, is put on the armor provided us by Jesus Christ himself. There's only one way of that. And then when the devil assaults you, that doesn't mean you're going to be happy and you're certainly not going to shout a whole lot. You know, you don't shout much on the battlefield unless you get the taste of victory. When it looks like that you're being defeated, or let, I mean, you're fighting for your life, you're not going to take time to dance and shout. Amen? And a lot of times we feel guilty in our life because there's not a shout on our lips and because there's not goosebumps running up and down our spine and because we just can't seem to react the way we want to react. But we got to remember we're being assaulted. We're being attacked. And it takes all of our energy and all of our minds to ward off this attack. And once we can sense victory, then we'll shout. Amen? But until we sense victory, all of our energies is spent on the attack and the assault of the devil. And uh, it's, his, uh, it's his duty to attack, our duty to attack and resist the powers of the devil. And part of our warfare is defensive, and uh, we're going to get to that after a while. 
And a lot of times we have to just venture out in the name of Jesus, realize our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And the biggest battle that we have, if we... himself 
warring against them to bring him into captivity to the law of sin in his life. And if the Apostle Paul had this battle, I wonder who we are to think that we're not going to have the same battle. And that is a battle continually. It comes and goes. Uh, in your book, I think, you have a reading, God's Law is the Ruling Power. A ruling power in every true Christian delights in the law of God. His new nature cannot sin because it is born of God. Now, we went across that. That's God's Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit of God inside of us. The only part of man that cannot sin is the Spirit of God placed within us. It is the only part of man that is regenerated or born again. All right? Your human flesh is not born again. Your human nature is not born again. Old Adamic nature is just like it's always been, and you still have this mind that has to be kept under control through the obedience of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's the only part of you that will never die. Amen? The Spirit of God inside of you. The Bible tells you that this body will go back to the dust of the earth from whence it come, but the Spirit back to God who gave it, awaiting the morning of the resurrection when that spirit then can quicken that body and bring it where it needs to be. And then that body will be regenerated as well as this human soul or mind regenerated. But the ruling part of, of a ruling power in every Christian delights in the law of God. In other words, there's never a time in your life, if you have the Holy Ghost in your life, there's never a time in your life what that inside of you doesn't delight in God's law. I mean, it wants to do what God asks you to do. It always going to do that. There's never going to be a time when the Holy Spirit in your life doesn't want to do what God's law tells you to do. And it says here, His new nature the, cannot sin because it's born of God. We went across that too. There's no way that the Spirit of God can sin. Just no way. Regeneration brought us a new nature when we received the Holy Ghost. Though the new nature is the younger, it compels the older nature, which we are born into, born into submission. The struggle begins here. In other words, when we come to Christ, most of us anyway have spent some time in the world. This old nature, this old Adamic nature, had ruled us. Uh, it had been the ruling force in our life. And then comes along a new nature. The Spirit of God enters in. And uh, we have a struggle. Now, uh, if we're not careful, we'll believe that when the Spirit of God comes in, why, then everything else goes out. And I have known Christian people that live lives of hypocrites. I mean, they have actually stated that there wasn't any, any nature in them. They didn't ever want to do this, and they didn't ever want to do that, and they didn't ever want to do something else, and uh, stood up and actually living a hypocritical life, denying some things, that was actually in their life. And God doesn't want us to walk through a life of denial. He wants us to know that in our spirit, in his spirit, there is no desire to do anything wrong. We're always wanting to do that which is right. But the elder shall serve the younger. That's illuminated to uh, the kingdom of our souls, so to speak. Long, struggling conflicts of our life. Always there, ready to fight. And we have to be the deciding factor. I mean, it's actually left up to us. God will not force us to do anything. I mean, he's not a forcing God. He will place within us his spirit, which gives us the dictates of right or wrong. He will let us know what is right and what is wrong. 
As somebody said, there's a little little thing in the back of your head or a little punch in the back. The minute you do something, the spirit inside starts to breathe. You know it's wrong. But God still leaves you with the choice. I mean, you can do that and follow human nature. You can do that and grieve the spirit. Or you can let this new nature, this spirit of God, take control of your thinking and then take control of your doing and then you're doing something that pleases God, but it will always be against human nature. Somebody said, how do you find the will of God? Well, I found the best rule of thumb is this. If flesh wants to do it, it's against the spirit of God. I mean, if flesh is actually crying out to do it, old human nature, Adamic nature in there, is actually wanting to do it, then it's against the spirit of God. What was it that we read? Uh, flesh is enmity to the spirit. Always against it. Never do they ever coincide. They never get together. And that's why there's always a battle. Neither one of them never thinks alike. A lot of times this old man probably lies dormant <laughs> at times, and he doesn't give you as many problems at times as he does other times, but he's waiting his chance. He's in there just real silently saying, just let him go on until he really thinks he's until he really thinks that battle's won, until he really thinks I'm dead, and then I'm going to put it on him. And you see a lot of people fall like that. Now, I, I would admit this. There's a lot of individuals that have received the power of the Holy Ghost in their life and a new nature that has never submitted to that new nature, that has never walked after that new nature, that follow the same rigid path of rebellion and refusing and self-service in their own lives, even though the Spirit is inside there, have followed those same paths that they had before it came in. They have never really released themselves to their new nature. And this is why so many individuals look at people and say, if they've got the Holy Ghost, I don't. I live as good a life as they do. That doesn't alleviate the fact that we need it. All right? It's in there for us to walk after, something we could not do if it wasn't there, but it's up to us to surrender ourselves to it. We can still be like we always was, and still the Holy Ghost will take up its abode, and it'll grieve it. Eventually, I think it will depart. I don't think it's going to continue to stand there when once we, uh, our conscience will be seared with a hot iron until we can do that which is unseemly, and it doesn't bother us. I think probably there's people already that's come to that uh, part in their life where they have just simply have never listened to the Spirit of God, have never submitted to that. Now, uh, I had one preacher to tell me that I don't have any problem really knowing what the will of God is. In other words, he've come to the conclusion that whatever he thinks is what God thinks. And there's a whole lot of Christians in a way that think whatever we think is what God thinks. And we can't realize that old human nature is still alive trying to think. I come to the conclusion a long time ago, what I think is not what God thinks. And, I, and actually, to me, we've got to find out what God thinks. What does he want? And it's not easy to break through this old rebellious nature of, of Adam that's always had his way and always done his thing and has always done your thinking for you. It's not easy to break through that. That's just a whole lot of times when we really don't break through it. Human will is too predominant. It's too strong. And uh, I thought when that individual said that, I wouldn't want to make that statement because uh, the Bible says that our ways are not God's ways. 
And it would be nice sometimes when we'd realize that these things have to be sought after. Yes, he did. The church uh, faltered and failed because he had thought that he had gained such supremacy. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, sometimes this old human nature just lies dormant, and sometimes it's asleep. And it'll just suggest we think that's from God. And uh, every time that uh, he spoke, he thought that was God speaking. And whatever he thought, that's what God thought. The first thing you know, everything was gone. But we do have a long struggle, conflict. This conflict encounters a lot of rebellions. And uh, we all know, I mean, we're all with just us here. And we all know that most of us are rebellious. We all know that, don't we? I mean, some maybe more than others, but when it comes right down to the, to the final thing, uh, you, you find yourself rebelling. <laughs> all right? I mean, over little things, maybe not a big thing, but over little things, you know. Uh, and uh, we'll find, find ourselves saying, well, I don't have to do that. Because he told me to. You know, and it's not going to hurt you yet, but it's just an old man in there saying, nobody going to tell me what to do. Amen. Of course, we don't have anybody in here like that. Certainly, I'm not like that. <laughs> That's the first thing that surfaces in my life. And i got to be honest with you. That's the first thing that comes up, and that's the battle. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. I, my life has always been independent. I've lived it that way. We came from a big family, and we were more or less on our own. And uh, we made our decisions, and I was uh, uh, out driving a truck and went and got an emergency chauffeur's license when I was 16 years old during the war and had made the living for the family, and there was an independence type of thing that come up. And uh, I was my own boss. We, we uh, did what we had to do, and nobody's standing over us. And it's something that inbreeds in human nature. And we feed it, and we come up with that. And finally, we have to realize that we've come under the law of God. And sometimes it's hard to realize. That. And the first thing that happens in our life is that, you know, if God wants me to do something, he'll tell me. All right? I mean, he'll tell me. He'll just boom it down from heaven. He'll shock me with it. He'll let me know. And we fail to realize that God's order, the way God asks it to be done and wants it to be done, as he does tell us. But he uses human instrumentality to tell us. All right? Sometimes I wonder why he did that, but he didn't. Now then, we still have desires. We still have human nature. Reading uh, in your book, a Christian's newborn nature strives to keep all the holy laws of God and to live an unblemished life without sin of omission or commission. Now this is what the holy nature in, within us wants to do. All right? Now, just because it doesn't do it, it's no sign there isn't a desire of this nature that God placed us that we want to live without any sin of omission. There are two sins, sin of omission, things that God tells us to do, 
As the little boy says, the sin of omission is things that you should have sinned, the times when you should have sinned and didn't. But that's hardly the, the, uh, that's hardly the name of the game. <laughs> it's hardly the definition of it all. Without the sin of omission, things that God tells us to do and we just don't do them. Now those are sins very rarely repented of. And if they're not, they're still sins that uh, marked out against us. And I think it would be nice if we just asked God to forgive us of all things that we have failed to do, as well as all things that we did that we shouldn't have done. But like I said, this new nature, this newborn individual, this Holy Spirit of God strives in there to keep all the laws of God. It wants to do it, and it fights to do it. But when we ever yield to Satan's suggestion, when we do, the new life in us is never going to be content. There's going to be a dissatisfaction. Maybe, just maybe, that's what's wrong with a lot of lives of Christians today that can find no satisfaction. I stopped to think about that for a while when I read it. It was written in our book. I stopped to think about that. There's so many lives of Christian people, and they're not satisfied. And yet the Bible tells us through Christ we can gain satisfaction. There is contentment, godliness with contentment. Doesn't mean because you're godly or living a life for God that there's necessarily going to be contentment there. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And sometimes I wonder if this isn't what is wrong in a lot of Christians' life. There's no contentment there. There's no satisfaction there. There's a turmoil at all times is simply because we're yielding too many times to the suggestions of Satan. And we're condemned over this, but yet something inside us says we're going to do it anyway. As one elderly brother that we've said often, we went to the Rosie Claire Church and there wasn't hardly anybody there. This old man would just come and take his seat and he had one marked out. I mean, he's like Brother Shorty back there. He just got his seat. Better don't go nobody get it. He was supposed to trade places with me this morning. He was supposed to be here. I was supposed to be back there. And he took my Bible and come up here and sat about a minute and a half. I don't know what happened to that seat, but he went right back there where he was. So there he is. But this old man, fine gentleman, came in, took his seat. That's where he was going to sit. And anybody else in it, he'd tell him to move. It didn't matter what he was, whether he was a stranger or what. He'd say, you're in my seat. And he had so many funny ideas, weird ideas, and we get to talking Bible, and I'd quote the scripture to him, and he got so frustrated one time, he just said, I don't care what the Bible says, I've always believed it this way. And I thought, that's just about the way a whole lot of Christians are. I mean, we have just always thought this, it's been traditional, it's been the things we've thought that we've been brought up in, we find the, in the Bible that it doesn't hold water, but we find ourselves unable to change the horses. And though we're drowning, and though we're discontent, and though there's no satisfaction in our life, we're still going to sit in the same seat, ride the same horse, and do the same thing. But anyway, sinful nature rises up. I delight in the law of the Lord after the inward man. Yet there's another law in the body of place bringing me into captivity. Now, we're each subject to the law of sin. 
though sometimes not in operation. Notice we said that sometimes it just kind of lies there. It's still present. Whenever you hear a person say, I have no desire to sin, he must be living somewhere besides in his own body. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard people tell me that. I've had people tell me, well, I don't have any desire to sin. I've got the Holy Ghost, you know, and that's fine. And then it says here, the nature of sin is always in us, even when it is dormant. Now, sometimes, as the writer says, uh, they go to sleep occasionally. In other words, Satan just lets them lay there. Now, he's setting a trap for us. He just lets them lay there. He doesn't awaken any of this. But we have to not forget that they remain sinful even when they're asleep. It says here, gunpowder is not always exploding, but it's always explosive. <laughs> All right? All it needs is just a spark that bursts forth just waiting for it to exert its power and explode any time. And within the nature of the best saint, the best saint is a hideous monster. All human nature, only the great God of heaven can overpower that mischievous indwelling sin. When least expected, sin may explode to take us by surprise. It's not uncommon to have a sudden outbreak at a time when you would be the most off guard. In other words, when it's laid down so much. How many in here has ever really had a temper? I mean, you just got a temper. And you have just brought that thing under control, and it's just laid there so long that you finally say, I used to have a temper, but I don't anymore. And then about that time something happens, you're off guard and somebody rubs you the wrong way, and you're ready to punch that individual in the face with that temper you thought you was rid of. Always been there. And as long as you're aware that you have it, and that it wants to come out and it will come out, as long as you are aware of that, you will fight against it. But once you think that you have overcome that, that it's not dominant anymore, it will never bother you anymore, it's dismissed, you're going to find a time. Because it's been laying there all that time, just getting ready to come out. When it's least expected, the devil's rocking in sleep. The individual who congratulates himself because he feels no sinful tendencies, no unholy thoughts, no impure imagination, no conceited ideas, no unruly passion, need to be reminded of an old saying, when the temptation sleeps, the madman is wise, the harlot is chaste. But when the vessel is pierced, out comes that which is within, be it wine or water. All right. While in the company of godly people and the mind occupied with good things continually, the bad instincts may sleep. That's why the Bible tells us, choose your country. Amen. So while you're in good company, around God's people, then you don't have to worry about all of this anymore, but should some circumstances change, should we find ourselves someplace maybe that we have never been, then we'll find ourselves committing things we never thought we would do. And it tells us in here, don't boast. I will never fall into that particular sin. And most of the time it says, how do you know? Perhaps you've never been in that position to 
fall. Now, we have made some very rash judgments on brothers and sisters that have been overtaken by particular sins that was found to us. We lost us. We couldn't understand it. And there was something, a weakness inside of that individual that caught, took them unprepared and soothes over the conscience, makes them think it's fine, all right. And we have condemned where we may never ourselves be caught in that particular sin. There's some weakness in us. Somewhere, each one of us fights a particular battle of human nature somewhere, somehow. I know a sister that her big battle, and she admitted it, was gossip. She didn't mean to talk about people. But that was a weakness. She did that all her life. She came to Christ. And the first thing you know, she would get involved in conversation. And the first thing you know, she had everybody but herself being sinners above all. Carrying mean gossip from one to another. And as they often said, gossipers hear just half the truth and make up the rest. And she found herself doing this. And she was pricked in her heart over it. And a lot of times she'd come and she'd sit in my office and she'd literally cry over what she had done to honest-hearted people. And a lot of things she couldn't undo. That would be the best and easiest thing in the world to berate the sister, to put her down, and all of this because that, 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 that really is not, not a weak point in a lot of us. Some of us it is. And when we stand strong in that, we think, well, anybody ought to do better than that. But each one of us, I'm going to say it again, each one of us fight our own particular battle, our own particular weakness. And we need to recognize that. And that's why the Bible tells us, wheresoever let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. That's found in 1 Corinthians. The warfare is conducted by the evil nature. We should be sympathetic with one another. How many Christians have been surprised into sin for which he was rightly to be blamed, but shouldn't have been so severely condemned by his fellow Christians? The sin should be condemned, but we should remember ourselves lest also we be tempted. Some of the best lessons in the world is found in that. The Bible tells us that, uh, well, it... It asks us in one chapter, condemnation or restoration, what is the job of the church? What are we supposed to do? And I think restoration is the job of the church. The word of God will condemn. That's not up to us. The word of God will condemn. And then it's up to the church to restore such a one. In other words, we, we, don't, we don't condone what is done. But if somebody shows a pure wholehearted repentance for that which has been done, it's up to us to make restoration unless the powers of hell continue and destroy that individual. And while we might look on it as, as an easy thing that they shouldn't have never been caught in this, might be one of our strong points. And by the same token, things that bother us would never cross their minds. There again, we have our own particular, particular battle. And there again, that's why God lets us know that we're not an island in ourselves. That the Bible does tell us we which are strong should be able to help and stabilize those that are weak. And let's reiterate that, and I've said it a dozen times. That doesn't mean that you've got super saints in the church and those that 
has their life under control at all times, and then you have these weak ones that these big strong ones got to go help around all the time. It doesn't mean that. It simply means that there's weaknesses in every one of us and strength in every one of us, and we should help one another. If we're strong in that area, help that individual who's weak in that area. And if they're simply uh, shot down by the powers of hell, it's not our duty to walk off and leave them. It's not our duty to, to kill them. I've said this often, too, that the army of the church, which is the army of God, about the only army I know that kills its wounded. I mean, if somebody gets wounded, mortally wounded by the church or by the people outside, and they, they're lying there, powers of hell has, has, has shot them down and uh, really wants to mutilate them and destroy them. And we look at it, and it's a ghastly sin that they have committed, and the first thing you know, we're just walking right over. And we're forgetting that one of these places somewhere down the line, we're going to get wounded. What we ought to do is just go to them and get them behind the lines and just pray for them and get their strength restored and then send them back on the battlefield again. But a wounded Christian is not one to be on the front lines. All right. Many are good because they have not had the chance to be bad. How many of you believe that? Many people are good because they hadn't had the chance to be bad. Circumstances just hadn't presented uh, that which would severely test the nature and see what might be lurking inside. And again, some may stand for God because the road they travel is not too smooth and nothing would be gained for falling down. To get as an example here, if a saint lives in a home of an alcoholic, why yield to that particular temptation? No advantage would be gained by lowering oneself to that debased position. These inward conflicts do, however, prove that we're alive. When we quit striving against sin, there's something terribly wrong. There must be some life in the soul hating sin, or there would be no inward war. And rest assured that the strong man of the soul, while he keeps the house, will keep it without struggle and in peace. But when a stronger than he comes to eject him, the war is on. And it says, how can we win the battle against sin? There's no earthly way we can resist the devil in our own strength, much less defeat him. Without Holy Ghost power, the strength of the prince, the power of the air, can never be conquered without God. Well, we're almost there. Maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to wait for this armor. God knew man wouldn't stand a chance against the devil without special assistance. Aren't you glad this morning that you have special assistance? That God came in, went for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, take on the family name of baptism, receive the empowering presence of the Holy Ghost, to help you live a life that Christ has cleansed you. He knew that through Somebody said, well, if he did that and the devil is dead, <laughs> what are we going to worry about? We got a lot to worry about. He's still there. He's still, as it says, hissing and spitting and writhing and taking his calling to the body. All we know is that he has been limited. But he's still capable of administering.